The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. The Jerusalem Channel extends a hand of friendship between Christians and Jews. Israel's annual night to honor Christian allies this year has recognized Christine Dark for her decades of writing and broadcasting on behalf of the Jewish people. Members of Israel's parliament joined in saluting Christine for her ministry of building bridges from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. People often tell me they'd love to come with us to the Holy Land on one of our prayer tours, but they hesitate because of fears of danger or safety concerns from their well-meaning loved ones. The sad reality in today's world is that there are dangers and hotspots erupting everywhere. A person is unfortunately just as likely to be involved in a terrorist incident in many other places around the globe. And in fact, Israeli security has been dealing with terrorists for decades, and they're much more effective in controlling the situation. Spiritual warfare is also increasing due to the nature of the end times. So let's keep going with the gospel and not give in to fears. And today, I want to delve again into the topic of spiritual warfare in the last days. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. The great preacher and author A.W. Tozer once said that the devil's master strategy is to destroy our power to wage spiritual warfare. Sadly, the average Christian these days is as harmless as a kitten to the kingdom of darkness. Tozer said the average professing believer is like a child wearing a warrior's armor. Most Christians, he said, are like little sick eaglets that can't mount up with wings. Let's face it, this world is not a playground. It's a battleground. And Proverbs 24.10 says that if we faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. I find the commentaries on this verse so interesting because they refer to believers who possess little faith. They have a small degree of fortitude, but they lack moral courage. They don't have a mindset to endure hardness as battle-hardened soldiers of Messiah. And consequently, they don't have the strength to encourage others to persevere. So today I want to encourage all people of faith to stay in faith and not to faint. The battle is fiercer than it was yesterday, and now is definitely not the time to lose courage or to give up because Jesus is coming. And God has been uncovering works of darkness and many things that needed to come to light are being exposed. Meanwhile, we must face the fact that spiritual warfare is inevitable. You must fight or die, be the victor or the vanquished. The conflict can't be avoided. Every step we take to prepare for the second coming of Jesus will be contested as we're bringing in the last Gentiles into the harvest. 
Yet the more strenuous the struggle, the more glorious the achievements. God is urging believers to resist responding to events with fear or anger, with offense, apathy, or just giving up, because it's going to become increasingly difficult for the Lord's faithful followers to maintain our convictions and at the same time hold a positive attitude that truly influences people. Well, Paul admonished his spiritual son, Timothy, to wage spiritual warfare. He said, fight a good fight in 1 Timothy 1.18. Fight a good fight in English is not as precise as the original Greek. The verb to fight is from a Greek word that gives us, in English, strategy. And so it means to fight like a soldier with definite strategies and weapons. And the noun to fight a good warfare actually means to wage a campaign or an expedition type of warfare. This tells us that in this life, we're not involved just in a battle or two. It's not a skirmish or a brief fight, but the journey of a believer is a lifetime continual campaign of spiritual warfare. And let's face it, not all battles are fought well or strategically. So we need to think strategically with heaven and its rewards always in our mind as our goals. Let us anchor our souls there. When Paul said to fight a good fight, the commentaries say he was talking about a person's character in the midst of our daily battles. The word for good in this verse is rendered elsewhere in the Bible as meaning beautiful. To fight a noble warfare with honorable, worthy, beautiful character. In other words, be a woman of valor, be a man of valor. You see, this warfare imagery was often used by Paul. And he said this spiritual warfare is unavoidable and common to all believers who have enlisted as volunteers under King Messiah, the captain of our salvation. So, having put on the whole mature armor of God, supplied by God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the belt of truth, and our gospel shoes, we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're more than conquerors through Him that has loved us. And what kind of fight is it? The Bible calls it the good fight of faith. You see, faith is always the key, isn't it? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And so we're expected to endure hardness by faith as good soldiers of the gospel. Paul explained why the last days are so difficult to handle. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, of that book. It sounds just like a commentary on what's going on in our world. But know this, Paul said to his protege Timothy, in the last days there will be perilous times. And one translation says grievous times of danger, persecution, and trial. The majority of the commentators believe the last days reference refers to the period of time immediately preceding the Lord's second coming 
But others explain that technically the last days refer to the entire gospel dispensation of the past 2,000 years. And we find this idea in rabbinic literature that 6,000 years are mentioned as the duration of this age in the world, 2,000 years of beginnings, 2,000 years under the law, and 2,000 years of church history called the Days of Messiah. That's why this last period, the Days of Messiah, are often alluded to by the Hebrew prophets as the end of days. The Bible tells us the last days began actually long ago. Consider, for example, 1 John 2.18, where he said, Little children, it is the last hour. And just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And from this, he said, we know that it is the last hour. So the final hour has already begun when John wrote his epistles. But God lives outside of time. So to him, one day is as a thousand years. The last hour began with the first coming of the Messiah. He actually ushered in the last days. After all, Jesus announced from the cross, it is finished. And what was finished? The work of redemption for all who will believe was finished and secured for us by Jesus at the cross. The temple veil was torn on the day Jesus died at the cross as he was bearing the guilt to the sins of the world. That veil was made of glorious embroidery in purple, blue, and scarlet threads with the forms of the golden cherubim. The veil was both a parable and a mystery. And the supernatural tearing of that ultra-thick veil from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood, was sufficient for atonement for sin. The way into the Holy of Holies was made open for all people, for all time, both Jew and Gentile, through the veil. Jesus knew it was only a matter of time before the temple would be destroyed. The old order of the sacrificial system was suspended and the new covenant began, the days of the Messiah. Well, Paul goes on describing these last days. He said people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without natural affection, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, but treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. He said they will exhibit a form of godliness, but deny the power of God. In other words, they're going to go through the motions of observing outward shows of belief in God, but in reality, they'll renounce the gospel's influence over their lives. They'll even mock the doctrine of the second coming, thinking that it has nothing to do with reality. And picking up at verse 10, Paul admonished Timothy, You know, however, all about my teaching, my way of life, my sufferings and persecutions, all that I endured. In fact, and here's a key verse that I want to emphasize today. Paul said, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Messiah Jesus 
will suffer persecution. That's spiritual warfare. While the evildoers and the imposters will go, he said, from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's an amazing verse because it's such an accurate description of our times with all of its con artists, even within the churches. So many Christians I know are suffering from imposters and deceivers. For Paul explains elsewhere in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggles in life aren't against flesh and blood. They're not against human beings. But we're struggling, we're wrestling against the demonic powers, the rulers, the darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the atmosphere in the heavenly places. We're actually contending with dark demonic forces. But on the positive side, let's not forget we do have awesome and effective spiritual weapons. Paul reminds us that the weapons of our spiritual warfare, the armor of God, this word, prayer and fasting, the name of the Lord, these are all weapons that are not physical, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds and demonic fortresses. Well, judging by some of the questions and comments that come to me on the social media or by emails, I'm alarmed at how many believers seem to be ill-equipped for the spiritual warfare of the last days. Many are naive. Others don't have a basic grasp of eschatology, understanding what the Bible says about the last days. And many seem to need guidance in elementary matters of faith such as how to stand on a promise in the Bible to get real answers in prayer. The lack of maturity and the disinterest in biblical eschatology alarms me because people will be caught unaware when Jesus returns suddenly. Jesus was so accurate when he said that the last days would be like the days of Noah. It'll be business as usual. People will be eating, drinking, marrying, but the flood came and suddenly washed them all away. As Paul said, many believers by now should be teachers of God's word, but instead they're still babies in need of the milk bottle. They're unable to digest the meat of God's word. They're unable to interpret the clear signs of the times outlined in the Bible. But Jesus repeatedly tried to prepare his disciples and to warn us that the last days would be treacherous like the days of Lot, Abraham's nephew, who lived in a very rough neighborhood, destroyed for its wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah. And today, due to mass media, all manner of sexual sins are flaunted and forced upon our culture like no other time in history. Can things ever be the same as they were in the past? It seems we've passed a tipping point in end-time prophecy. And while the Lord mercifully grants us seasons of revival and refreshing, nevertheless, this world is experiencing the birth pains of Messiah. You see, one age, the times of the Gentiles, is finishing, and a new age is being birthed, the rising again of Israel and the restoration of the Davidic kingdom to Israel. You see, unlike what many church theologians teach, God is far from finished with Israel. We see Israel in the news every day, and we see many signs of Israel's coming national revival. But why 
don't the churches see this and talk about it? For example, in the cathedrals of this world, we hear scripture lessons routinely read every week about Israel, about end-time prophecies as these readings come up year after year in the lectionaries. But the lessons are read matter-of-factly, as if the Bible words have no relevance to today. Bible prophecies about Israel that are being fulfilled before our eyes are read publicly every week in churches. But they don't seem to register on the minds of the people who seem to be asleep. Yet the prophet Simeon clearly foretold the whole history of Israel in Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph had brought the baby Jesus into the temple to be dedicated. And Simeon took the infant into his arms and prophesied that Jesus was destined for the fall of Israel so that the hearts of many men could be revealed. But Simeon's prophecy didn't stop with the fall of Israel. He went on to say that Jesus is the glory of Israel and that he is also set for the rising again of Israel. And now you and I are privileged to be living in these momentous prophetic days of the rising again of Israel. Well, it was a foregone conclusion amongst Jesus' disciples that the Davidic kingdom would be restored. They just miscalculated the timing. After the resurrection of Jesus and just before his ascension into heaven, the disciples came to him in Acts 1.6. And seeing that he was alive and had triumphed over death, they asked what to them was a very obvious question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Would he usher in the messianic kingdom at that time and start to rule Israel and the world? from the restored throne of his father, King David? But Jesus' answer surprised them. He said that before he restored the kingdom to Israel, first, they had a worldwide job to do. First, they had to preach his gospel of the kingdom for a witness to all nations, and then the end of the age would come, meaning only then, after the gospel was preached worldwide, would the age of the Gentiles finish and his thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth begin? So right now, you and I are living in a transition period from one age to the next. We're moving from the times of the Gentiles to the rising again of Israel, towards the second coming of Jesus and the Davidic kingdom. So these days that we're privileged to live in require a great deal of discernment, prophetic optimism, endurance, and spiritual warfare. We need to understand spiritual warfare and not be taken out prematurely or sidelined by satanic forces due to a lack of wisdom or a lack of understanding of these momentous days. In the meantime, we have a lot of work to do as intercessors. In Ezekiel 22, for example, God gave a charge to the watchman. God pointed out that the city was full of blood and surely our Western nations are full of the blood of aborted infants and other violent crimes, mass murders, defiling our lands. God instructed the watchmen to reprove the city's inhabitants for all their sins. Sin must be acknowledged and God's people must stand in the gap 
to repent. Not only are our cities full of blood, but the Lord declared, you have forgotten me. And God also charged the leaders and prophets with fleecing the sheep and getting rich off of widows. All of these things have profaned the name of the Lord among the nations. And God is indignant. He said in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I wouldn't destroy it. But I found no one. What was the complaint of the Lord? He was saying that the people of God weren't interceding. They weren't building up a wall against sins and murders. They weren't standing in the breaches along the walls. The people weren't praying and truth was fallen in the streets. God warned for years and years through watchmen, just as he's been doing in our generation. And are we listening? Well, I want to inspire you that our Jesus is coming not as the meek lamb of God the next time, but as the roaring lion of Judah. He's coming as the captain of the Lord's armies. And he'll be greater than any military leader this world has ever seen, far greater than Washington or Wellington or Napoleon. Lately, I've been studying Isaiah 63 a lot, and it asks, Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, mighty to save. It's a prophetic picture of the second coming of Jesus as the champion of our redemption and avenging judge. The commentaries tell us that Jesus, Yeshua, has all the qualities of a great military leader. He has wisdom, moral courage, and valor. Perhaps you've never thought of Jesus as a great military leader, but after he died on the cross, he descended into hell and he conquered the prince of darkness single-handedly and grabbed the keys of death and hell from Satan. And when he returns, he'll be leading the armies of heaven. Well, where do I think we are right now on God's timeline? I think we're in 1 Peter 4, 7 in the apostle said that the end of all things is at hand. That word in here in this passage in the Greek is telos, meaning consummation. The apostle was saying the consummation of the age is at hand. Therefore, be sober and watch unto prayer. And verse 8 of that passage says, And above all, have fervent love among yourselves, for love covers a multitude of sins. And in verse 12 of that chapter, Peter goes on to say, And beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is trying you as though some strange thing is happening to you. Instead, he said, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Messiah in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world at his coming. So I want to encourage you in all of your daily trials because none of us is immune from them. Satan simply couldn't succeed with destroying the faith of Job or Peter or Paul because the Lord himself is able and willing to keep us from falling. 
Remember the veil, the curtain that I mentioned earlier that hung in the temple? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 gives us this wonderful word picture in verse 19. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the veil where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf as our high priest forever. What a word picture. It tells us that our soul is chained to an anchor, which is a symbol of Jesus himself and his cross, anchored in the Holy of Holies. It's as if you're tied by an unbreakable cable of faith to the Messiah right in the Holy of Holies in heaven, where he makes intercession for us, and nothing can ever break that cable. The power of God secures us forever. This is such a beautiful image because it's two images combined of the Holy of Holies in heaven and the anchor of our soul. The writer of the book of Hebrews was definitely inspired to put these two images together to teach us some lessons of truth. It teaches us that the soul is like a ship. The world is a storm-tossed sea. The Messiah is our pilot. And faith is the anchor that penetrates heaven's veil. And what a glorious anchorage it is. Faith lays hold on God himself on covenant mercy. So we need to cast the anchor of our faith and hope into heaven, into the unseen by faith, even into the very heart of heaven. Yes, our anchor finds holding ground only in heaven. And our hope is anchored on the person in heaven, Jesus, our high priest. Therefore, let us set our affections on things above and wait patiently for his appearance and glory. Because faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Don't forget, if God is for us, who can be against us? For as many as received him, Jesus the Messiah, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So even within battles, times of refreshing will come if we stay in faith, press into God, stay anchored in Jesus, praying for repentance on behalf of our nations, and if we refuse to faint. Perhaps the most important question for the times in which we live is this, is your calling and election sure? Do you know that you're saved and that you're living for the Lord? A lot of people don't know, and a lot of people are uncertain. Recently, I asked a sales clerk who'd helped me very nicely. I said, are you a Christian? And she hesitated because she wasn't sure, and I suppose she was even a little bit embarrassed by the question. She was brought up in a country with a Judeo-Christian heritage, but she really didn't know if she's a believer or not. Well, the gospel does have the power to save you and your loved ones. But the decision is ours. We have to make our salvation sure by making a conscious decision to surrender our lives to the Lord. And the Bible teaches that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if we are willing to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, it promises we shall be saved. There are many people in prisons today who once made a decision to accept Jesus, but 
They never lived for him and they never became his disciples. Jesus told us solemnly that if we're not willing to forsake everything for him, we cannot be his disciples. Well, as I bring this time together to a conclusion, if you'd like to stay in touch via the social media or our website, the web address is exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our electronic magazine exploits. And please download our Jerusalem Channel app. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Maranatha and Shalom.